Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Emily Wilkins, a congressional and campaigns reporter with Bloomberg Government and your guest host for today. With me, as always, is one of the top election experts in D.C., our very own Greg Giroux. One of the main themes in the last couple elections is how many women candidates are running, winning, and getting into those positions of power. 2018, a record number of women won their offices. Democrats took back the House with dozens of women candidates. In 2020, Republican women were the big story, winning their elections, really helping close the gap between Republicans and Democrats. So what's happening this year? For that, we're going to speak with Kelly Dittmar. She is an expert on women and politics to get the story of women in 2022. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. But first, as always, we bring you Jerome's Gem. Jerome's Gem, a political number of note I introduce every episode of Down Ballot Counts, is 147. That's how many women are presently serving in Congress, according to the Center for American Women in Politics. That number amounts to 28% of the 532 seats in the U.S. House and U.S. Senate that are presently occupied. Over the past few decades, the percentage of members of Congress who are women has increased steadily but slowly, and that 28% figure is obviously much lower than the percentage of women in the general population or the electorate. What are the prospects for increased women's representation in Congress in November the 8th midterm election? Well, as Emily mentioned, we'll talk about that subject coming up. That is your Jero's Gem. Thanks so much, Greg. This is Bloomberg Governments. Down ballot counts. We're joined now by Professor Kelly Dittmar. She is the Director of Research at the Center for American Women and Politics at Rutgers. She's the author of several books exploring the stereotypes and strategies of women on the campaign trail. And if you haven't checked out the work she and her colleagues have done at the Center for American Women in Politics, you are missing out. They have a ton of great data and analysis on female candidates, just really comprehensive. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start off just by asking you a bit about the general overview about how this election is shaping up. Uh, We still have hundreds of women running for the House and for the Senate, but not as many as we've seen in previous years. Why is that? Yeah. So if you look across the board uh, and look at the recent history in 2018 and 2020, we had these high record years for women running for office, particularly um, the U.S. House and state legislative offices. In 2018, it was a Democratic year. You know, Democratic women really accounted for all of that increase and both ran and won at record levels. In 2020, we saw a sort of return uh, for the Republican women who had not fared well in 18 and ultimately ran and won at record levels as Republican women, again, U.S. House, state legislative level in 20. This year, we're seeing more of a sort of stasis. The House number is actually, the total number of women running for the House is actually exactly the same as it was in 2020, right? So it's still high historically, um, but we haven't seen that level of increase that we saw in the last cycles. Um, And then when we look at nominations, those numbers are even a little bit lower. So I wouldn't raise a red flag about a decline, um, but just to say that we aren't seeing a continued pace of increase for women. And the why is kind of difficult. You know, there's probably not any one reason. Uh, one, One factor might 
might be that we know Democratic women um, run at higher rates. In other words, the majority of women who run are Democrats. It could be that they looked at this election year and said, mm, maybe it's not ideal for Democrats. Maybe we wait two years. Um, the overall number of Democrats running is down, right, comparatively. And so that could factor into some of our calculations because of the disproportionate um, part or the partisan difference among women. Um, it may also be that a lot of the persistent barriers that we've seen for women in politics are true this year as well. You know, are they getting early support? Do they have the finances? Do they need, uh, they need, uh, are they being recruited and in, in targeted ways? Um, and in a year where the discussion about equitable representation is less at the top of our storylines in political discussions, it may be that there were less of those efforts, especially from party gatekeepers and those, um, doing recruitment and support. Uh, so they may be some of the factors, but there are probably other things that are at play that might just change the the decision making calculus of women running and again their the support that they're receiving to get through nomination and ultimately to to election day that kind of touches on another aspect that I was curious about. At this point, are we seeing a lot of differences between fe uh, female candidates and male candidates in terms of how they are treated, how they are treated by voters, how they are treated sort of by the uh, party establishments? Yeah, so I think that there's obviously progress. Um, so on the one hand, we're seeing some of the more traditional gender stereotypes um, and even intersectional stereotypes be less of a quote unquote disadvantage for women. Um, so we think about politics and expectations of elected officials as often being more aligned with stereotypes of men and masculinity. So you have to be strong and tough and expert on national security. Of course, that's especially true at the executive level, um, but it has also been true at other levels in ways that might uh, hurt women, it might make them not be seen as equally competent or equally capable um, of being in elected leadership. In the past few cycles in particular, what we have seen is candidates from other um, non-traditional backgrounds, including women, um, say, you know what, actually, my distinct perspective, lived experience, and even some of those stereotypical traits that you might not have historically valued for elected office should be valued. We should think outside the box. Um, and so we saw women running on the fact that they are mothers of young kids, something that used to be seen as a potential downside, something that would make them less capable of being an elected leader. Them instead saying, well, you know who's best to talk about school shootings and education curriculum and healthcare um, during COVID? Those who have young kids leaning into some of those identities that previously were not seen as electoral assets has actually worked for for many women and women of color. And I think that's a point of progress. Um, but it doesn't mean that there still aren't gendered standards to which women are hold that men that and men aren't. I think it's still true that women are expected to talk about and prove their qualifications for office in a way that is often more expected of men. Um, they also take the risk of um, being hurt more um, when they make a mistake, when they make a misstep. Um, and I think we still see some of the, the fundraising disparities. Even though women can ultimately raise the same amount of money, are they getting um, the same levels of donations? Is it as hard or easy for them as it is for men? Um, and we know in particular that women also make up a much smaller proportion of donors 
and women are more likely to give to women. And so there are some of those continued challenges just in the system um, that might make it at least harder for women to win, even though we see time and again in the last two cycles that women are winning the most competitive races. I also wanted to ask you quickly about women of color, how they are doing this particular year, both with, with Democrats as well as Republicans, because I know, you know, I could you could name about at least a dozen uh, black Democratic women who are holding office. There is not a single black Republican woman who's sitting in Congress right now. That's right. Yeah. And I think there was certainly attention to this in in 2020, because we did see Republican women of color, a small number still, um, but some of the first Korean American women in Congress, for example, were Republican women elected in 2020. And so there was at least some progress. Um, I think in this cycle, we're not likely to see significant gains um, for Republican women of color, with the exception perhaps of Latinas. Um, so we saw some of those gains in the previous cycle. Um, Mayra Flores, who just got into Congress in a special election, a Republican Latina from Texas, um, looks like she could potentially retain that seat. Of course, it's a especially competitive seat. Um, and there are a few other Republican women of color. Jennifer Ruth Green, who's running in Indiana. That's a competitive race. She identifies as both Black and Asian American. So, so those are some races to watch for specifically. If we look at overall trends, um, um, we did hit record levels for women running, black women particularly running for governor, running for the U.S. Senate. These are places where black women are not represented at all. So we have zero black women in the Senate. We've never elected a black woman governor. So those are things to watch for. Of course, in terms of nominations for governor, watching Stacey Abrams race probably most specifically for the possibility uh, to break that ceiling. Um, and in the Senate, in terms of trying to look for if we will have any representation for black women, I think we're most likely to be watching Val Demings in Florida and uh, Sherry Beasley in North Carolina. Latinas are the only group that actually of uh, um, not white racial groups that have hit a record level of nominations for the U.S. House. Um, so this is a storyline that I think probably hasn't gotten as much attention, but to look at the representation of Latinas, both on the Democratic and Republican side, uh, running for and potentially winning, including some states that might elect their first Latina to Congress. Um, that's Illinois, Oregon among them. There are a couple others, I think Colorado. Um, and so these are states to watch for the potential to make history for Latinas running for office as well. And how do you assess the prospects for increased representation of women in non-federal races, namely governor and the state legislature? Yeah. So, I mean, I think governor is a huge uh, point of progress for women this cycle. So, you know, when we're talking about being at stasis for women candidates, that's not true at the gubernatorial level. So we surpassed by a lot the record for women candidates as well as nominees. We now have 25 women nominees running for governor. And of course, not all of them are competitive. So just by numbers, we're seeing more women run. And then their prospects, you know, are fairly good to at least get us beyond nine women governors. We hit that record of nine women governors um, in 2004 for the first time, and we've not exceeded it since then. Um, and so women are significantly underrepresented at this level. And so we see a number of states where um, we will see gains. So Massachusetts, pretty likely to see the election of Maura Healey, who will also be the first openly lesbian woman governor. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders in Arkansas, that's a pickup. 
And then uh, in Oregon, we'll have a new woman governor. We just don't know of what party um, between an independent, a Republican and a Democrat. Um, the same is true in Arizona um, with Carrie Lake and Katie Hobbs. Not sure which woman it will be, but we know a woman will pick up that seat. On the flip side there, though, why we might not go far past nine or we could even stay at nine is dependent on how these inc vulnerable incumbents do. And so obviously watching states like Kansas. And so the, the, the vulnerability of incumbents factors into that prospect. The state legislative nominees are at a record level, but not by a significant amount. So I also think it will be how do incumbents fare? How do some of these open seat women uh, fare in state legislative races to determine whether or not we see a jump in, in that representation or stasis or even a slight decline. I think we're likely to see stasis or a slight increase, but it doesn't look like it's going to be a, a record shattering year for women coming out of these uh, state legislative contests. And you've mentioned some potential milestones or first we should look for on election night. What are some uh, other things we should be watching uh, out for on election night? Storylines, what, what, what recommendations do you have for um, uh, uh, people who are you know, journalists, but also just interested members of uh, the, the voting public who, who are interested in uh, the, uh, women in politics, increased representation of women in politics, what things they should be looking for on uh, election night? I definitely think the story about how to incumbents fare, women incumbents fare, is important for a couple of reasons. One, just being it's going to really be determining where we land in terms of women's representation. And I would say related to that, um, one thing that has gotten less attention in the cycle is that we already have 18 incumbent women in the House who are departing. So what that means is we start out election night minus 18. Um, and that's due to a couple of reasons. Some retired. Um, we had the death of Jackie, Jackie Walorski. Some ran for other offices. And of course, some lost their primaries. And so in House races in particular, though this is true across levels, looking at where we start um, into election night and then thinking, can we make up that loss and even surpass it? So I think that's an overall storyline across cases. We have some other milestones that I haven't mentioned. Of course, the first woman being elected from Vermont. It's the last state that has never sent a woman to Congress that is almost all but assured to happen on election night. So that's a milestone worth noting um, to say that we still have these sites of, of lacking representation for women. And then I think there's a story storyline that's maybe a little below the surface that hasn't gotten a lot of attention as well, which is a pipeline question. So in 18, we spent a lot of time talking about the wave of women, um, the increase of women running and winning, the diversity of those women. And what we're seeing is there are a number of those women who won, ran and won in state legislative offices for the first time in 18, who are now going to be in Congress. Um, so you look at somebody like Summer Lee in Pennsylvania, who'll be the first black woman elected to Congress from Pennsylvania. She won in 18. She pushed back against the Democratic Party. She's very much of that kind of mobilized community organizer who came into to legislative office. Uh, Delia Ramirez in Illinois, going to be the first Latina from Illinois. Also, um, one of those recent wins um, for a woman of color at the state legislative level. So I think there is a class of state legislative women in particular to watch um, who are now running for and likely to win higher office. 
I also want to ask, obviously, uh, I think everyone understands the general importance of diversity and of having women in power. But I also want to just dig in a little bit about how this power translates once women are in office, particularly at the federal level, because in some ways it already feels like women do have a seat at the table. The speaker is a woman. Uh, Elise Stefanik, the number three House Republican, is a woman. You look at the committees and some of the most powerful committees are headed by women. Now, of course, women only make up a a third of all members in Congress, that's less than the general population. But what would it actually mean uh, in terms of power, in terms of legislation, uh, to have more women holding seats? Yeah. So I think we can measure and think about representation and its effects in so many different ways. As you noted, one, we want to think about where power lies. So it's not just simply having X percent of women in office, but are they in the positions in which they're able to set agendas or shape discussions, ultimately decide what gets debated on the floor um, or whose voices get brought to a committee hearing? It's in these spaces where we talk most about substantive representation and why it matters to have a diversity of voices, including diversity from women and among women, right? Because men who make up the majority of our legislative uh, officials, they get to have a full range of diversity. They're the most conservative. They're the most progressive. Um, but we make expectations sometimes about women that if we get women in, they're going to pass paid leave, right? Like, or we're going to get women in and this abortion policy is going to pass. When we know, in fact, that's not the case. It's not that we elect X percent of women and X policy passes, but instead we elect more women and the conversation changes. And in particular, the lived experiences and perspectives of women shape those conversations in ways that just wouldn't be the same from those who don't share those experiences. We can go all the way back to sort of welfare reform and look at um, the ways in which having women in committee here on TANF, you know, mattered because they were saying like, well, if you're going to make people go back to work, you might want to think about childcare <laughs> and childcare expenses because women are still most likely to be thinking about those caregiving considerations in their own families. We also know that women are subject to other experiences that men are not, oftentimes around sexual harassment, sexual assault. What does that mean? Well, it meant that when I think seven women got on the Senate Armed Services Committee. All of a sudden, we started having a lot more hearings about sexual assault in the military. And the outcome of that wasn't only affecting women in the military, it was affecting men um, who were subjected to this type of treatment. But it was women who came from that lived experiences that this is something I have to think about all the time. And I think it matters in this space too, and we need to talk about it. Those women had very different feelings about what the solution was. They continue to to this day but they raised the issue in a way that it hadn't been raised before. And I think you can check down a list of a lot of policy issues and say, were it not for the distinct perspectives and lived experiences that women bring, we might not be talking about this aspect of an issue or this issue at all. And there's a last point I want to make, which is oftentimes we don't know what the impact's going to be until the issue arises. So until something comes up and uh, and women are at the table, we might not realize just how important it was that they were. If we think back to the Supreme Court nomination hearings with Brett Kavanaugh, I mean, we should have had some foreshadowing that it mattered to have women on that panel based on our experiences um, uh, in the past, of course, with Anita Hill. But certainly it was more striking to people in that moment 
that the Republicans had no woman on that committee asking questions, raising issues around sexual assault and believing women who come forward with that story. So sometimes we can't even anticipate, but we know from experience that it's going to make a difference to have a diversity of women's lived experiences at the table. Well, Kelly, I think that is a perfect place to leave it. Thank you so much for taking time to chat with us today. I know you're super busy. You're three weeks out from an election, uh, but this was absolutely fantastic. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Down Ballot Counts today. It was hosted by myself, Emily Wilkins, and Greg Giroux. Our producer is David Schultz, and our executive producer is Josh Block. We will note here, as always, that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg government's parent company, sought the Democratic nomination for president and then went on to endorse Joe Biden. Be sure to check out all the great politics coverage at our website, about.bgov.com. We'll see you next time. An individual's race should not be used to help him or harm him in his life's endeavors. A pair of lawsuits has made its way to the Supreme Court, and the decision could dramatically change just who gets into which college. Bloom is effectively using the Asian community as pawns. Every lawsuit needs a villain. To mask an anti-Black and anti-Latino agenda. Does this demoralize me? No, it doesn't demoralize me. This season on Uncommon Law, we'll explore the arguments and the people driving this latest battle over affirmative action. Can the Constitution be used to remedy society's ills? I'm the only person in class who has to raise my hand and say, okay, well, actually, here's how this affects people that look like me. Does the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause prohibit all discrimination based on race? You let somebody in because of their race, you're keeping somebody else out because of their race. There might have been two or three Latinos, including me. And so somehow that's too much. Somehow that goes too far. It's hard not to take that very personally. Coming October 25th, part one of a three-part series on affirmative action. What's being decided is whether black and brown people are going to be excluded in significant numbers. Only on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.